This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. You're listening to Season 7, and every week this season, we bring you content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together like-minded organizations who are all focused on making disciples. And our goal is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. Before we jump into the episode for today, I wanted you to know about the Discipleship.org Collective. This is an online community for disciples and disciple makers. You can get free access to this collective with all its webinars, seminars, ebooks, courses, and even personal and church disciple making assessments. It's a community, so you have the opportunity also to connect with other disciple makers. You might also be interested to know that there is a premium access option as well, which includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders. Check this out at discipleship.org slash collective and sign up for free. Go to discipleship.org slash collective to get your free membership with the discipleship.org collective. Today we're featuring a main session talk from the National Disciple Making Forum, and the theme for the year this was recorded was King Jesus. This talk is called Surrendering to King Jesus, featuring Ronnie Goins, Brandon Bowers, and Robert Coleman with Bobby Harrington as the host. Enjoy. Well, uh, I hope you folks have enjoyed all of this as, as much as I have, as much as our team has. Uh, I'm just so thankful for uh, Bobby, for the team that has put all of this together. You know, I, uh, I was thinking through uh, just some of the things that I've heard, the messages I've heard, and I'm looking forward to what's going to be spoken today. You know, I, I'll, I'll, let's just be honest. Uh, you heard the statistics yesterday. There are so few people who know how to make disciples. Would you agree? Yeah. They don't, they don't maybe understand that they are a disciple, that they've been called to be a disciple and, and then called to make disciples. Uh, and so they, they define themselves as Christians, which is different than a disciple. Uh, they, they don't know that they should do anything other than attend a church, maybe check a box, maybe put some money in as it goes by. Uh, if you're really spiritual, then it means you get to be an usher, right? And support some way somebody else's work. They don't know. And, and let's be honest, there's a reason why they don't know. Uh, I, I think it's because of the discipleship methods that we've made converts instead of disciples. And, and, and again, a lot of pastors in America, if you were to say, uh, do you know what it means to be and to make a disciple? They would, they would usually say yes, because the definition they were given was one who preaches and teaches. Right. One who, you know, keeps all the plates spinning, you know, the, the organizational system. However big it is, uh, you know, that, that's what it's all about, the preaching and the teaching. And that's disciple making. And again, I would say that's part of it, but it's an inc incomplete version. And if that's what you fall into, it's not really reproducible your, from your people. I mean, you know, they can't actually do what you're doing. They don't have a venue to get up and do what you're doing. They typically don't have the education the way you do, and we've defined discipleship as education and then skill sets, gifting to, to teach and to preach and do all those kind of things. 
And so what's happening is when you define discipleship as Jesus defined it, and you put some legs on that, most pastors will say, well, okay, then I have never been discipled that way, which makes sense. They can't share with people something they never accepted. They don't know how to do. And, and, and so they, they really don't know how to do that. They know how to build a system that preaches. And when somebody listens to the sermon and accepts Christ, they come forward. We take them through a class. We, we, we maybe um, talk to them about baptism and all of that. And again, that's not very reproducible because when your, when your people go to church or excuse me, go to work, they don't, they can't call a, Hey, lunch break today. I'm going to preach a sermon and they can't reproduce what you're showing them. And they've never had anybody show them what we're talking about. And so there's this big disconnect. And so when pastors come and they go, okay, that's what it's supposed to be. I don't know how to do that. Then that leads to a crisis of belief. Uh, okay, how, how, if, if my job is to not do it for people, my job is to show people how to do that, model for them how to do that. I don't know how to do that. I'd have to undo all the things that everybody expects me to do. I mean, they expect me to be at the hospital. They expect me to be, to do the funerals. They expect me to do the weddings. They expect, they, they've been trained like little kids to want specific things. And your job is to do it, and it might cost me my job. And so not only am I bound by what I've been taught and what I've actually built and somebody else built and I'm trying to sustain, but I don't know how to do it. And that's scary. I have to deconstruct my life in some way. And to come to a conference like this, and and, and if if we're really being honest, for many of you, we're asking you to deconstruct your life and do something you really don't know how to do. And to do something that could be very painful. Because think about it. Relationships are scary and people are a mess and it's much easier to write a four-part sermon and do a series than it is to get into the mess of people's lives. That's scary. That's dangerous. And so you come and you're like, well, okay, uh, well, I'll just preach harder. I'll go back and I'll preach that discipleship means that it's King Jesus and, and I'm going to follow Jesus. And if I just preach better and tell better biblical concepts and stories, you know, that way I can say I'm about discipleship. I'll restructure the church so that the classes are all about that. And, and, and because I got to make people happy and because I got to, I don't know how to do it. And, you know, uh, here's the problem. Let me, let me just say this to you. When you're, when Jesus went to his disciples, he said, first, leave your stuff, come and follow me. Right? Remember the fish and the nets? Drop the nets. Just caught a bunch of fish. Just leave it. Come and follow me. He didn't do the miracle to make them rich. He did the miracle to show them who he was. And then said, come and follow me. How scary was it for people? Typically, fishermen are good with fishing poles. They're not so good with people. Right? People are scary. People, you're asking me to leave my business. You're asking me to do all this stuff, right? That's scary. Being a disciple is uncomfortable. Someday they were going to go into the world that wasn't all that happy to see them. When Jesus said, go into the world and make disciples, 
he was sending them into like sheep among wolves. It was going to cost them all their life. That's very uncomfortable. Jesus became uncomfortable by leaving heaven and coming down here for us, doing what we needed rather than what made him comfortable. Would you agree with that? He modeled, this is what it looks like. I'm leaving heaven, the throne. I'm coming down here. Now I'm asking you to leave what you know. And I'm asking you to come and follow me into the unknown faith. When we go around the world, you go to Pakistan or wherever, you ask somebody to come to know Jesus, it's, it's not like it is in America, right? It doesn't take a lot of courage here. I mean, it, it should, but it doesn't the way we preach the gospel. You're not, you're, you know, at very worst, your family might, oh, I can't believe you fell for that. Not, they're going to kill you. You go to another country, it takes courage to actually follow Jesus because it may cost your life, right? Did you know that for your people to actually make disciples where they're coming from? See, for, if you're a pastor, it doesn't take, it takes some courage to go, hey, everybody here's a Christian. I'd like to disciple you. They already have some interest in Jesus and they're here, right? And so you're, you're not really risking, even by asking some people in your congregation to come and follow Jesus because they're already Christians. They already came on the Christian turf. They may say no. I mean, you're risking they say no. But it's not, it doesn't take that much courage because the system we built, we're insulated from it. The problem is our people in their jobs, where they go to school, in order for them to make disciples, it's going to take risk. They're going to have to go to a business where it's not everybody who's crossed the line to come to the church. They're going to have to actually say to somebody, hey, you want to come read the Bible with me at lunch to a person that might say no, might even get them in trouble at work in our current day culture. It takes risk, getting uncomfortable, trying something they don't know how to do for them to, to participate in the mission of Christ. And the problem is most pastors are oftentimes so safe in this environmental system they're in, spinning all the plates, not getting involved in people's life that they're preaching, go into the world and make disciples. In the context in which our people live, that's risky. What does that even look like? The models at the church, they got a place where they can actually preach the gospel. Nobody throws anything at them, says anything to them, drops the F-bomb on them. Well, I hope. I mean, in most churches, probably not. Nobody th See, here's what I'm trying to say in all this. You might be wondering. When you come to a conference like this, true discipleship takes risk. Leaving that which is comfortable, even a religious system, where everybody expects you to do certain things, going, you know what? I don't know how to actually make disciples because no one ever discipled me, but I'm going to risk. I'm going to try and fail. And that's going to be okay. I'm going to step out into the faith and start doing what Jesus did and doing what he told his disciples to do. And, 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 and I'm not going to worry about changing the church system. I am going to become a disciple of Jesus who is courageous. I want them to be courageous. I want them to risk. I want them to restructure their life to follow Jesus, King Jesus. I'm willing to leave behind the religious system that's about discipleship and about concepts, and I'm willing to move beyond something that's about discipleship to discipleship, beyond concepts to actions, where it gets dangerous and messy and mistakes are made. 
I'm going to rather, by the way, that changes your preaching. You now start preaching about real stories, real situations, real things that you're in, not just books about concepts and, 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 you know, big words, ideas that theoretically should work. You're telling stories about real things in your life, the ups and the downs. It changes the way you preach. It changes the way you live. And when you start doing that, things start changing. So what are you going to do with this? Another conference, get inspired. Go back and try to inject discipleship into your already developing systems that take all of your time. Or are you willing to go, I'm willing to change. I'm asking everybody else to change their life. I'm willing to change my life the way I do things. That's going to change me. That's going to be risky. Now you're going to start experiencing Jesus as he speaks through you in situations that you're not familiar with. I'm going to start not preaching me and not worry about what I know. I'm going to look at the opportunities that I have with people that I don't know, that I'm not like, because I'm going to show them Jesus, and Jesus is going to work in me, in my fear, in my not knowing what I'm doing, in all of that. Jesus steps in. I experience Jesus. It changes me. And then as I'm changed, the people around me start seeing something different. They start seeing a model rather than a theory. We change the world for Jesus one person at a time. And it starts with us. Good to be in the house this morning. I want to thank Bobby um, Harrington. Thank you for the inclusion of inviting me to be here. Uh, so Craig Etheridge, brother, thank you for the introduction to discipleship.org uh, several years ago. Um, I want to be a great steward of my time. I'm looking at it right there. But I got to tell you um, about um, a little discipleship little tool I brought here for families. So you, can, you can find it at the table. No one's stopping that. Um, you can find it. You can, it's, a, it's a discipleship book that's designed for uh, a 12-week devotional that we can get conversations and self-reflection back in the household. I believe that really discipleship starts at home, not at church. So I believe if we, if we, if we, if we just reintroduce discipleship at the dinner table, we won't be so pressed to have to do the discipleship at church. And so it's a great book, and, 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 and it's not deep or nothing like that. As a matter of fact, it's quite rudimentary. It's a very simple uh, book. Um, and if I could be transparent, I think I brought way too many. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know what I was thinking. I thought white people bought books. I didn't know what the deal was. I didn't, I just, and I just brought a whole bunch of them. But, but, but what you can do is... Um, I have some other things, our discipleship curriculum. You can go to asfreemiles.cc, and that's all of our discipleship curriculum there. Um, and it's going to be some good stuff. So that's that on that. Um, that's how you pay the bills. Now, most of us are familiar, and Jim touched upon it, Luke chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 11. It talks about, you know the story, when Jesus, he was, he was, um, he was preaching. And just like many pastors here today, he was preaching so well that he ran out of room. And so he told Peter, he told Peter, hey, let me borrow your boat, push off the shore a little bit, so I got to keep preaching. So Peter said, okay, bet, I'll let you do it. So Jesus, he started preaching, and afterwards, after um, Peter let Jesus preach, Jesus said, you know, let me show you where the fish are really biting. And after that, uh, he, he caught this big, um, this big load of fish, and then Jesus said, you know what, man, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Peter said, okay, bet. He said, well, and, and also, I want you to follow me. 
The text says that Peter and the guys with him, they, they dropped everything. They left everything to follow after Christ. Now, have any of you ever, wondered, have ever found it odd that at the end of a long, frustrating day of working, that here at the end of a long day of non-production trying to catch this, that Peter would let Jesus use his boat. It's exactly that Peter, being a fisherman, would listen to a carpenter tell him how to fish. And if that don't make matters worse, here's the kicker. At the end of this, Peter leaves everything to follow this Jesus? Is it just me or is it, it, or is it odd? Now, I know this is the creme de la creme of Christians, but I found it odd that after one meeting, Peter says, I'll give it all up and follow after you. After one meeting? I mean, I, 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 I know we love the Lord, but, I, but am I the only one that it took Jesus, a, it took a little bit more convincing than one sermon for me to get my act right. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't just turn up a new leaf because after one sermon, Jesus had to show me some stuff. But Peter, and it appears that Peter, after sitting one time, he, he, he let him use his stuff and left his lifestyle. I found that intriguing, almost unbelievable. And I realized that this wasn't their first time meeting. See, they, they met previously in John chapter 1, verse 35 through 42. In John chapter 1, verse 35 through 42, you know, when, when, when John, he was standing out with his disciples one day, they were talking, and then here comes Jesus strolling, and then just, oh, yo, behold, that's the Lamb of God. And two of the disciples, they went to fall after Jesus, and they hung out with him, and one of the ones was with Andrew, who was the brother of Simon, who was also Peter. And when, he's, when, he, when, he, when, he encountered, when Andrew encountered Jesus, he went to go find Simon, hey, man, we found the Christ. We found him. So now Simon Peter, he goes with his brother Andrew. He meets this Jesus. They have a conversation. But that isn't when he started following him. See, by the time Luke chapter 5 rolls around, John is now in jail. By this time, in Luke chapter, Luke chapter 5, John is in jail, and now Peter sees Jesus walking along, asking to use his boat. Now don't, now, don't you miss this. Don't miss this. John 1 was the introduction to Jesus. Luke 5 was when Jesus starts the discipleship process with Peter. Don't miss this. He meets Jesus in John 1. He decides to follow Jesus and emulate Jesus in Luke 5. I'll give you one guess as to where most Christians are. John 1 or Luke 5? Most Christians, we heard the Barner study, they're stuck at John 1. And if I may take a pastoral parenthetical pause, I, 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 I got to say that, that, that we, like uh, preachers, I need to share, we, we, we preachers, we preach so well, but I got to tell us that on our, on our best day, our best sermon couldn't save a soul. Andrew simply led, introduced his brother to Christ. 
Our sermons can simply lead someone to introduce them to Christ, but let there be no mistake about it, man of God. Let there be no mistake about it. It takes the Holy Spirit to save a soul. That's why sometimes I oftentimes refer to the Trinity as God the Father, God the Son, God the Evangelist, because it's the Holy Spirit that speaks to and I said, and God the Evangelist, because the Holy Spirit is the one that touches, convicts, and molds the heart of men. I'm sorry, I heard a feeling. You mean you thought that it was your powerful, paramount, paramount preeminent, puissant pontification? of the word that led people to Christ? No, sir, no, ma'am. Jesus saves the soul. Our job is to disciple the one that got saved. But what was it? What was it that made Peter say, I'm all in? Why did Peter say, I'm ready? Because the Bible says, if you read the text, I don't have time to go through right now, but the Bible says in Luke chapter 5 that Peter was in awe of the catch. Peter wasn't all that I've been doing one thing the same way and in a matter of minutes, this Jesus gave me a new way to do things. This is Jesus, this Jesus that I, I, I just met. He's now shown me how to do some stuff that I did. I did the best I can and failed. And that's some of us. You did the best you can with what you knew. But until you met Jesus, until you met him and you saw some things that got you to Luke 5. There had to have been something that, that you saw with Jesus. You know what, Jesus, I want a pound of what you're offering. And that's why we're here. Discipleship.org is designed to give us the tools. How, what led to Peter actually being disciple? Well, Jesus asked him. Jesus gave him the invitation. Jesus gave him an opportunity. And that's why we're here to learn how to get tools to give believers opportunities to be disciples. Now, if I may be transparent, there was a big gap between the time I met him and the time I started walking after him. Now, I'm just talking about me. I know your neighbor is great. But for me, it took a while. Because even after I met him, I had been discipled in anger for so long. I was still a fighter. I was, I, I, my, my temper was horrible. My discipleship that I received, because something is discipling you, whether or not you let Jesus do it or not, something is discipling you. And mine was growing up in a home that was violent and having, and having front row seat to gang violence. All I saw was anger. And so, so my discipleship taught me one thing, and that is never be intimidated by anyone. And if someone thinks you're intimidated, then you do something real big to make them know that that's a mistake. And that mindset led me to get arrested for second degree assault and battery. I remember being checked into the county jail. I remember this like yesterday. I'm being checked into the county jail. They, they took my clothes. They gave me my, my little jumpsuit, my little, my, little, my, little, my little rubber slippers. And, I, and the only thing on my mind is I was getting checked in the back. I'm taking my mugshot. The only thing on my mind was I cannot wait to get back here and beat the hell out of somebody. Because I was angry. 
I was discipled in anger, and I just could not wait to get to the back. They took me back. I put my stuff down. I knocked off some push-ups and got ready to dance. I walked over to this polished piece of metal that they call a mirror, and I looked at myself, and I didn't recognize myself. I looked. I looked like an animal. My facial features were hardened. I didn't, and I scared myself. Good news is, because I had at least met him before, I met him in a Sunday school class on a song that says, he's got the whole world in his hand. He's got the whole world in his I met him in a song. And I thought about it, I said, you know, someone said that you, that, that, that you never get too far as you cannot call upon the name of Jesus. And so while I'm looking in this, in this, in this mirror, I said, Jesus, don't let me die like this. And the more I called upon his name, I started to look like myself a little more. And I kept calling upon his name, and I started getting my face back. And with my face came a peace. And when I got this peace, I went to my bunk and went to sleep. And when I woke up, it was time to eat. And, and so, and so, and so that's how I was. I was discipling anger before I met Jesus. But what discipled you before you met him? What would you, what, what were you, was it, was it, was it promiscuity? What was it about you? What, were you a liar? Were you, were you a manipulator? What was it about you that, what were you exposed to coming up? That disciple, something is discipling you. Whether not you let Jesus do it or not, we're all disciples of something. And the responsibility, I got to hurry, the responsibility of discipleship is not just with pastors, by the way. Oh, bless his name. It's not just with pastors. We're all called to be disciple makers. Preacher, how, 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 how do I discover who I'm to disciple? Great question. The answer to your question is a question. You ask God, say, God, Show me the me before I met you. God, show me the me before I met you. Oh, God. You'd be shocked of who he might show you, what you look like before he got into your life. But be warned, the person he showed you might be black. That person might be white. That person might be Latino. You, if God shows you, and, and we have to get off, we get, I gotta hurry. We gotta get out of this thing with, with church. We gotta get out of this thing of, of churchianity because, because if the person don't look like us today, we tend to dismiss them. We turn up our nose because her dress is too tight. And you think that she wants your husband. You don't want your husband, first of all. And so it's one of these things that, and so, and so we tend to look down upon people that don't, I got to hurry. Um, another pastoral parent, that Uncle Paul's, or one more of this, and I, I want to help you because you're spending way too much money trying to make your churches racially diverse. 
You're spending way too much money trying to make your churches racially diverse. Save your money. I can tell you right now how to make your churches racially diverse. I can tell you right now how to do it. I'll tell you why it hadn't happened. And first of all, let me say what the answer is not. It's not adding a minority or white person on the praise team. It's not, it's not hiring more diverse staff, a diverse pastoral, pad, pa, uh, pastoral staff and putting pictures on the website. It's not hosting another racial reconciliation symposium where we, where we meet and we apologize to each other. The reason why churches are not racially diverse, you ready for it? Because your members aren't inviting other races. You want more black people at your church? You want more white people at your church? Invite them. But we tend to gravitate towards and feel responsible for those who look like us and don't say dumb stuff like, I don't see race. If you don't see race, you're colorblind. You must see race. Yeah, I mean, stop, stop. It's, it's just the dumb stuff like that that we, how do you not see me? It's a cheesy statement. But what about the cultural differences? I mean, well, how do you connect with them? Both of the men that discipled me, both of them were white men. And watch this now. They were really, really white. I mean, like really, really white men. But they loved Jesus. And they loved me. They knew how to disciple men. And they discipled me. And watch this now. They saw my race. And they respected me. They saw me as a black man. And not only did they see my race and love me as a black man, but they made sure that their friends respected me too. We got to go home. We, okay, this is it. This is it. I, I'm gone. Okay, here it is. Here it is. Here it is. It was storming one night in Texas. I'm hearing thunder, lightning, rain was coming down really good, and I was getting some of the best sleep of my life. And out of nowhere... I felt my wife nudge me. I tried to play like I didn't feel it. <laughs> and she nudged me again, honey, honey. What's up, baby? It's storming outside. I said, stop the madness. <laughs> and I knew it was coming. I, br- I knew it was coming. I braced myself. And she said, you think the kids are okay? I plaque, I didn't hear it. (laughs) Honey, honey, can you go check on the kids? Now, here it is. I'm having the best sleep of my life. It's late at night, and I'm the man of my house. I'm the pastor of my own home. I have a doctorate degree, by the way. Travel the world. And I did what any strong man of God would do. I got up, (laughs) I went upstairs to see if the kids were safe. I went to the first room, the beds were empty. I walked down the hall to another room and I saw that all three of my boys were in the same bed together. I realized something, 
They couldn't stop the storm from outside. They couldn't stop the noise, the rain, the thunder, lightning. They couldn't stop the noise, but they figured that they just come together. They can sleep through this storm. They can get through this storm. They do it together. And that's my thing for us. We got to get our hearts right, church. We got to put aside our political partisanship. We got we to stop being so myopic that we only see our race. We got to get past this stuff because if we don't come together, this storm is going to take us under. And I don't care. Listen, and I don't care. Listen, it does not matter your context. Any differences are too small. The kingdom is too big for our myopic way of thinking. Abraham, listen, when Abraham heard God's voice, God said, go up the mountain. You sacrifice Isaac. Abraham heard God clear. He woke up the next morning. Mr. Colby took him up the mountain. When he got up there, God gave him a new set of instructions. He then said, don't touch him. I provide a ram in the bush. Now, had Abraham stopped listening to God at the foot of the mountain, he would have missed the covenant. There's some churches in this room right now. You heard God clear on where you started, but it's a new day now. Now, as you, as you traverse the mountain, God is now saying, go and decide. You have to go and say, you know what? I, we did all that God told us to up to this point. But now God is saying, we got to go and make disciples. We're going to stop being a church that's trying to baptize so many and get some discipleship records in the book. This word of God for the people of God. Hear it. Be saved. I'm late. God bless you. I want to start by saying, Bobby, thank you for the invitation to be here. Uh, also want to say... I'm not grateful that you didn't tell me I was following a black preacher. <laughs> I mean, what in the world? Got people on their feet of Oregon playing. Conference called Kanye's album. I'm thinking we got Sunday service on a roll. He's going to come down out the balcony. and It's not fair. I, uh... <clears throat> and thinking about the conference and King, Jesus being King, uh, I started thinking about authority, the greatest authority, obviously, I've ever had in my life. I've been under a lot of authority, pastoral authority. I've had jobs outside of the church, served under some powerful attorneys, uh, bosses. And the greatest authority in my life I ever had is about five foot two, and her name's Beth. It's my mom. Uh, I was raised by a single mom. Uh, we, we grew up with nothing. My dad left when I was three, and we grew up in a little town called Bishopville, in South Carolina. Still remember going to the store, having government stamps, me and my two sisters, and uh, getting groceries that way. My mom was putting herself back through school, went to college with three kids, and uh, eventually got her teaching certificate, became a teacher, and uh, we moved up a little bit. She remarried, and, and growing up as a teenager, we always had this clash. She raised me to be a, an independent boy, uh, a young man. I was cutting grass when I was like nine years old. I was really at the, the head of the house anytime I needed to take care of my sisters. Uh, my stepdad was in the military, so he was always away. And so there was this dependence for me to be in a leadership spot at my house. When I turned 16, there was a clash because I was, I was a king. I was an authority. I'm doing things my own way. So we had a curfew at the house. I thought curfew was a suggestion, not a command. Uh, and one night I came home, actually multiple times busted curfew. One night I came home, uh, it was about one o'clock in the morning. 
And I pulled up, if you've ever done this before, you know, pulled up in the driveway, quiet as all get out, and I went to the side garage door and it's locked. See, I was late. I was, I busted curfew. Side door's locked. I'm like, okay, this is strange. So I go around back where we hid the key because there was always in the back underneath the mat, there was the, the hidden key, hidden key's gone. I said, all right, this ain't good because now I got an option, right? Option is stay out all night or go to the front door and try to figure out a way to get in the house. So I go to the front door and as I walk the sidewalk towards the front door, I can see on the, the porches a couple suitcases, a Rubbermaid. <laughs> I make my way up to the door and I, and I realize all my belongings are on the front porch. The king spoke. <laughs> I, I was like, in that moment, didn't know what to do, so I left, went back to my boy's house, Bo's house, spent the night, the next morning, got in touch with my mom and went to breakfast. And mom informed me that while I was a young man, 16, thinking I was running the world, this was her house. And as long as I was in her house, I was going to follow her rules. Anybody ever have a speech like this from a mom or a dad? Well, I'm here to remind us today that God's got a house, and it's called his kingdom. And you don't have to agree with everything in the kingdom. You don't have to like what you see in the kingdom. You don't even have to understand it. But if you're going to be in the kingdom, you got to listen to the king. Now, listen, I'm convinced that our churches and maybe even some pulpits are filled with people that don't want to listen to the king. Like when you look at the Bible, God, God's always had a kingdom. In Genesis chapter 2, he created Adam and said, I want you to what? Rule and reign. Right? I want you to rule and reign. He put him in the garden. He worked the garden, named the animals. I'm going to give you a wife. Gave him Eve. They, they weren't satisfied just to rule the kingdom. They wanted to be king. So they said, well, we don't want just to rule the kingdom. We want to eat the apple. We want to be you. And what happened? Everything fell apart, right? You got brothers killing brothers. Families having incest, rape everywhere. Six chapters, four chapters later, Genesis 6, earth gets flooded out. God goes, reset, you know, this ain't working. The whole Testament, the whole Testament's really the search for another person to run the kingdom. You got judges, then you got King Saul, King David, King Solomon. And then the Old Testament ends literally with 400 years of silence with what? The promise that there's a king that's coming. There's a king that's coming. He's going to be here, a king that's going to rule the kingdom. And then John the Baptist in the New Testament shows up. What does he say? Hey, watch out. Kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom's coming. It's on the way. I'm just, hey, I'm just paving the way for the Messiah, the Son of God that's on the way. Jesus shows up. What got Jesus killed was not the fact he was the Savior of our sins. It was that he claimed to be king. Jesus in John 11, he's performing miracles. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. Heck, the angel Gabriel showed up to Mary and said, look, the Lord is in your belly. That child's going to grow up and be a king. Like, you're carrying a king. Jesus in John chapter 8 talks about a king, a king that's not of this world. John 12, when he comes riding into Jerusalem, everybody runs out palm branches. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. And it'd be a week later that he stood on trial. He said, yeah, I am a king. My kingdom's not of this world. And then he'd be put on a cross with a sign above his head. Said what? King of the Jews. Jesus was a king, but he wasn't the king that they wanted. They had a kingdom, but they wanted a different king. 
If we're honest in this room, and I'm assuming that I'm talking to a lot of pastors and ministry leaders, if we're honest in this room, we have kingdoms, and we want a king to bless our kingdom. And sometimes it's really hard to go, no, 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 not my kingdom, but yours. Not my kingdom, but yours. And that spreads into our churches, where we have people going, God, just bless what I want to do. I don't really want to do what you want to do. And that's exactly what we find in the whole New Testament. We're guilty of it, church. I served in a large Southern Baptist church for the early part of my ministry. I was saved in college, came to know Jesus, went on staff at a big Southern Baptist church, not unlike this one. Planted a church about six years ago. And can I just tell you that sometimes we go, man, I don't like what I see in my church, but it's the fruit that it's, the fruit's coming from the fields that we are working. We are producing it. We've planted it and cultivated it, and now we're harvesting it. And you go, well, how do we change what we see? It's got to start with me. It's got to start in here. I have to start questioning what in the world am I doing, and is it in line with what Jesus called me to do? Because the kingdom's not mine. We have a king, right? We have a king. So here's what I want to encourage you with today as you think about what do I do with what I've heard at this conference? What do I do with what I heard? Because the greatest call in our lives as ministry leaders, pastors, staff, leaders in the church is to help people see, yes, Jesus is the savior for your sins, but he's also the king of your life. And as the king of your life, Man, there's some, there's some things that he promises us, and there's some things we have to understand about him being king. The first one is this. As a king, he's over you. Now, we don't like that. That pisses us off. We don't like authority. Like, man, I don't trust nobody. I don't trust the government. I don't trust the police. I don't trust the church. Like, my culture, my generation and behind me does not trust leadership. So the thought of, hey, uh, I'm under it. Wait, you over me? You ain't over me. You're not, over, you're not over, no, Jesus as king is over us. That means what he says goes. That's what he says goes. He told us in Matthew 28, we've been talking about it in this conference, right? The Great Commission, go make disciples. Go make disciples. And you go, well, I, I, I know I need to make disciples, but I got, a, I got a sermon to prepare and I got a service to put together and I got programs to run in my church and we got this outreach and I'll, I'll let them make disciples. I'll talk about disciples, but I'll, I'm equipping the disciple makers. Yo, listen, as pastors, ministry leaders, listen to me. Jesus is king. What he says goes. Do what he says to do. Do what he says to do. I remember six years ago, I, I, I stepped out to plant this church back in the city where I got saved as a college student. I didn't know how to make a disciple. Now, I'd run ministries and budgets and programs Hundreds of people in my college and young adults preaching the thousands. But if I had to be honest with myself, I'm going, what's the train behind me look like? If we're talking about disciples, who's walking in my dust that looks like Jesus? I'm running programs. I'm leading mission trips. I'm doing everything I was taught to do, but I was not making disciples. And you go, well, how do I do it? Listen, the king said do it, and the king modeled how to do it. And it's not rocket science. And no booth out there in the hallway is going to give you a resource that fixes it for you. The greatest resource that you need is the New Testament. Pick up the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Look at what Jesus did. And you go, man, that's hard. It's not hard. Listen, I live in Charleston, okay? 
You, you saw it on the news a couple years ago, 2015. White man, Dylan Roof, walks into a black church, Mother Emanuel, kills everybody that he sees, basically. Thought they were all dead. One of those person, in, one of the ladies in the room, her name was Sharonda Coleman Singleton. Her son, Chris Singleton, is in our church. Our city is split with racial divides. We got slave market for a reason. They just opened up an African-American museum, and we got everybody talking about racial reconciliation in the church. But you know what very few people are doing? Anything about it. And you go, what? well, how do I know what to do? Here's what you do. Here's what you do. Every Wednesday morning, and I'm not saying this to brag, I'm saying because God's teaching me this in my own life. Because Jesus said, go make disciples. Every Wednesday morning, I sit in a men's group. Chris Singleton's in a seat. Jermaine Watkins is in a seat. And two white guys are in a seat. And Sean's in a seat. Because if I'm not leading it out as the leader of my church, my church cannot expect to do anything. We have got to stop. We have got to stop waiting on some kind of prescription on how to do something different than what Jesus called us to do. The king has spoken. And the great commission is not a great suggestion. It's not a great idea. It's not an option that people can sign up for in the church. It's the marching orders on how to be like Jesus. Y'all, the king's over us. Amen? It's over us, and it's unpopular to talk about that. And so just to go a little further, uh, as a king, this is something we got to realize. He owns us, too. The king owns us. Like, every king is a lord. And we don't talk about lord much, but y'all ever had a landlord? Listen, my church plant, when we started the church, we didn't have nothing. We started the church with $6,000 in the bank. Everybody's working jobs. And so the first two years in Charleston, we rented an old Baptist church. Had six people. The membership was six. And it was all the same family. Man was 86 years old. I had people from our Baptist convention, oh, you should talk about a merger and a partnership. And I'm like, y'all need to come meet this dude. We ain't merging nothing. And, it, and so we, for two years, we met. Now, we had to sign an agreement. He was a landlord. He, he was a landlord. That was his property, what my property. So we got a bunch of young guns, you know, moving into Charleston. Hey, we're going to reach the whole city. We're going to change the world. And we're meeting there. And there was no air conditioning. It was old carpet. The baptistry, y'all, did not have water pipes run to it. It had not been used in years. And so I come in. I'm like, man, I'm so excited. We're going to reclaim this church. We're going to use it. We're going to baptize people. It's crazy. Went to the pastor. And, hey, I got some ideas. We need to put up, we want to put up some signage so people know where to drop off their kids. Now, you can't do that. Hang on, no, no, what I'm saying is we got to put signs up so people know where to drop their kids off on Sunday morning. Can we do that? No, you can't do that. That's a renovation. Like a renovation? We're not knocking on a wall. That's a renovation. Hey, can, can we move the flags? You know, because every good Baptist church has got an American flag and a Christian flag right here <laughs> next to the piano and the organ. We, we had the two flags. I'm like, hey, can we move the flags out on a Sunday morning? Why? Because I just don't like the cross getting too close to the flag because it makes us think up in people's minds. So... Can we just take it out real quick? No, you can't do that. That's a renovation. I'm like, all right, we got to get some language down. We pull up a contract and I'm like, what can we do, right? And as frustrated as I got in that whole process, y'all, for two years, we danced in these conversations. What can we, what can't we, what can we, what can we? We couldn't do anything unless the Lord, him, landlord, gave us permission to. You know why? Because he owned it all. Now, listen to me. This is important. In Luke chapter 19, there's a, there's a story where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. It's his final week 
of his life. And as he approaches the city, he has his disciples with him. And they're walking along, and Jesus gives a really interesting command. He goes, hey, I want you all to go into the city, take a right, and you're going to see a colt tied up on a pole. Grab the colt and bring it to me. That'd be like, that'd be like you looking at your deacons and going, hey, look, I want, you to, yeah, go, I want you to go into Franklin, first Mercedes you find, jacket, bring it back, okay? That's <laughs> what it is. The disciples look back at Jesus and go, hey, what if they see us untying it? What do we say? Jesus goes, tell them the Lord needs it. <laughs> All right. So Peter and John roll in like a G. They're like, hey, start untying this colt, right? Of course, the owner comes out. Hey, what you doing, man? That's my ride. Hey, the Lord needs it. Go, oh, right? <laughs> they, they take the colt back out to Jesus, and what happens next is amazing. Jesus mounts up on that colt and rides it into the town as king. Now, hear me on this real quick. I think some of you, maybe God wants you to hear today, that in order to receive the king in what you're doing, you need to release that cult that you're holding on to. Because if this man was holding that cult, he would have never seen a king that day. And you go, what's my cult? Your cult is your way of doing things at your church. It's tradition. It's always been this way. We can't let go of this. Your cult may be your paycheck. Hey, if I start pushing these things in my church, what happens? Hey, what happens if you lose your job? Your, your cult may be your family and you're guarding it like crazy, man. Release, anything you release to the Lord, isn't that ultimately what we want, by the way? Don't we want Jesus to come in and get on and take over everything we're doing? Yes. It's what we want, but it'll never happen. It'll never happen if we hold on with white knuckles to these things that we think are so sacred. What do you have to let go of in order to start doing what Jesus said back home? Your cult may be your calendar. Your cult may be some staff. Y'all don't want it. I'm going to stop saying it right now. <laughs> we all have it, guys. We all have it, girls. Things that we hold on to. But I'm saying you might miss the presence of Jesus if you don't just let go of it. The fears, the unknowns, the whys, all the questions, and go for what Jesus said to do. Third thing is this. I'll close with this. As we teach people that Jesus is king, we have to believe it first. Not only is he over us, and not only does he own us as Lord, but he's also got us. He's also got us. My favorite moment in the life of Jesus is when he's hanging on the cross, and on each side of him, he's got these two criminals. And on one side, you got a criminal who says, hey, I thought you said you were the Messiah. Why don't you pull us down from here? Why don't you save yourself and save us while you're at it? On the other side of Jesus, we got a criminal, and he says, hey, today, when you enter your kingdom, please remember me. And Jesus looks back at him and says, uh, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. See, when Jesus is the king, he owns the kingdom, and he's got you. He's got you when you step into the kingdom. A couple years ago, I went over to, to Cairo, Egypt. Went on this 10-day Egypt and Israel. We did the whole Holy Land tour. It was basically me and a whole bunch of senior adults. I had a pastor who was like, look, I got a free trip. You want to go? Done. I'm in. So go over to Egypt. We're looking at pyramids, and we go through the Sinai Desert, and it was amazing. But when we landed in Cairo, I'd never been over there, y'all. We landed in Cairo, hotbed of Muslim hostility, okay? Go through the airport. We land. We're working our way through the airport. We met our guide. Our guy's name was Adele, not that Adele, right? 
But Adele was cool, man. Like he, he was basically saying, look, you just stay with me as we work our way through the airport. He met us at the terminal and we worked our way out. We wove our way out through the airport. A whole lot of people that looked like us loaded up on these charter buses. And when we get on the charter bus, I hear from the front of the bus, I was sitting in the back, from the front of the bus, this lady left her purse. So my pastor, Dr. Don, says, Brandon, from South Africa, Brandon, go back in and get the purse. Yes, sir. Right? Pastor speaks, I roll. So I get off the bus, run back in the airport, not even looking around at me, head down, trying to get back to the terminal, go all the way back to the terminal, find her purse that was at the station, and as I'm trying to get out with this bag that was not my own, get stopped by security at the airport. Now this is scary for a little white boy from South Carolina in Cairo, Egypt, where a whole bunch of Muslims look at me. And y'all, they don't, they don't pack guns over there. They're like carrying, you know? My heart's racing. I'm scared. You know, I'm sitting, dumb lady, forgot her purse. Don't get me killed. I ain't never gonna see my wife and three kids again. You know, like, I'm gonna be on the news. And I'm standing there trying to answer questions and communicate with security. And as I'm talking at security and having this dialogue, I hear this voice coming down the hallway, this voice running, and it's Adele. And he's saying, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Arabic. He's with me. He's with me. He's with me. And he comes and he grabs my arm and we walk right through security and we get back on the bus. Can I just tell you, some of what we talked about here at this conference, some of what you're going to have to lead your people into if we're going to be obedient will be scary and it'll be risky. And there's going to be times you wonder, am I doing this alone? Do not forget the promise of the Great Commission that I'm with you. I'm with you and the King has got you. Amen. Let's just thank him together before we go back into worship. We've got a King that's got us. calling that you have trusted us to carry on that work that you began when you called some disciples to follow you but we're grateful that you're not finished with us yet and that's why we've come here and we've learned some new things been reminded of other things we can see where we have been careless and we have failed even as we have been renewed in our determination to press on to higher ground. and we're grateful father that we have that invitation to come to you and i believe that most of us here today have been reminded that you have more for us to finish in your high calling. 
And I invite those of you that feel this this afternoon. You want to respond to the way God has spoken to you. And to renew that dedication that you have already made. But in a deeper sense, responding to some new challenge that you have heard again in these days. So I invite you to come. If you want to, you can kneel here around the altar or you can stand however you feel comfortable. But make this a moment when we seal in our hearts that conviction and that faith that have moved us to be here together. So we invite you to come now as the band continues on. Father, this is just a beginning. When we start, where do we finish? There's so much more to be done. And we look out upon a world that is still hungering and thirsting for the word of life. And so many who've not yet even heard the gospel. But we respond mostly today from the church those that have already responded and we see the harvest that is waiting yet to be reaped and the multitudes yet who are waiting to hear oh lord grant that this time in the closing of this gathering will be a new beginning in the resolution to press on with you until that great commission is finally completed and you will gather your children from every tongue and tribe and nation. And we will finally see him who is the king sitting upon the throne in all his glory. And your people there assembled in his presence, beholding him now in all the majesty of his own name. The name above every name. The name that we call again by which we too bear that name oh what a privilege you've given us what a high privilege just to be here together and to celebrate that mission that you have committed to your church when we want to go from this place Lord doing a better job than we've ever done more determined to live in the footsteps of him who is still leading us on until finally our faith turns to sight and we see you upon the throne, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh, and every knee will bow and every tongue declare to the praise of God, Jesus Christ is Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. That's it for today's episode. Make sure to check out the discipleship.org collective and get your free membership to tons of free resources. There's a premium version too. Check it out at discipleship.org slash collective. Thanks for listening. Until next time.